DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, objection withdrawn. Sweden's NATO bid gets the green light from Turkey. Problems ahead? A new forecast predicts a sharp right turn in the European elections. There's no doubt that the European elections, when there is this uh, rightward shift, that one could uh, conceivably expect political parties that are on that end of the spectrum to subsequently benefit. As happened after the last election where the Green parties did relatively well, Green Party support generally increased in national parliaments uh, immediately after. All that plus a grand finish. Our roundup of who's in competition for Finland's presidency. Sweden's bid to join NATO got a major boost on Tuesday, with the Turkish parliament finally ratifying its membership application. For 20 months, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been obstructing Sweden's bid, ostensibly in order to gain concessions from Stockholm, which Ankara regards as being too lenient on members of the Kurdish separatist group, the PKK, living in Sweden. However, is that really all that's going on? Well, no, says our correspondent in Istanbul, Dorian Jones. Sweden has actually been the victim of a much bigger power game altogether. After 10 long months, the Turkish parliament overwhelmingly voted to ratify Sweden's NATO membership. The vote came after intensive diplomatic lobbying by NATO leaders led by Washington, while the ratification was held up by a long list of demands Ankara placed on Stockholm. The real cause of the delay was Turkish demands that the US Congress ratify the sale of American F-16 fighter jets to replace Turkey's ageing air force. Özgür Unlu Husukcala of the German Marshall Fund in Ankara explains. This actually reflects the distrust uh, between Turkey and India. It's, it's become like a chicken-egg story, like who should act first? Now, the United States is concerned that they could actually give their 16s and Turkey can still not ratify. And Ankara is concerned that Turkey could drop its only remaining card and the United States may still not respond. That's the problem. That distrust was exacerbated by the apparent lack of personal chemistry between Erdogan and US President Joe Biden, who in the past described the Turkish leader as a bully. But that impasse was broken by a rare phone call between the two leaders last month. It's reported Biden convinced Erdogan that he could only persuade Congress to allow the jet sale to Turkey if the Turkish parliament ratified Sweden's NATO membership. Sinan Ulgen of Edam, an Istanbul-based think tank, says the deal was made last year. There is a, uh, an agreement that was uh, essentially stuck uh, during the uh, last NATO summit in Vilnius, whereby the US side would uh, essentially start the formal notification of the F-16 package once uh, the Turkish parliament ratifies uh, the accession of Sweden to NATO. But the reason it took so long for Erdogan to agree is due to scepticism in Ankara as to whether Biden can get Congress on board. There's hostility in Congress towards Erdogan over his authoritarianism and threats to neighbours, including Greece. 
It's a rare issue that bridges the deep divide between Democrats and Republicans. Erdogan's strong backing of Hamas, calling it a liberation movement, has only added to that hostility. While Biden is increasingly seen as a lame duck president, failing to even secure funding from Congress for Ukraine. Claims the analyst says in Erner of the Duvar news portal. Biden cannot be exerting pressure over the uh, Senate and House of Representatives for the sake of Turkey. I mean, he couldn't do it in case of Ukraine. He's uh, struggling with that. So how can he do it uh, on behalf of Turkey, which doesn't deliver anything and on top of it supports Hamas? Such concerns could yet further delay Sweden's membership. While the Turkish parliament ratified NATO's expansion, Erdogan has yet to sign off on the legislation. And he may well wait for Congress to move on the military jet sail before signing. If Erdogan fails to sign within 15 days, then Parliament will have to vote again. And Sweden and NATO will be back to square one. But Asla Aydin-Tashbash of the Washington-based think tank, the Brookings Institution, says Biden should be able to deliver. I think that congressional approvals really rely on key party spokespeople on the committees, and there is still an overwhelming approval for the deal, enough numbers to pass foreign relations committees in both houses, because it is so important for transatlantic unity, not because U.S. Congress approves of Turkey's foreign policy direction, a criticism of, uh, of Israel, not because they're happy with Turkey's human rights record, Even if the hurdle of Turkey is finally overcome, Hungary is yet to ratify and Prime Minister Viktor Orban, after 20 months, is now demanding unspecified concessions from Sweden. But in an apparent step back, Orban is now saying he is committed to Sweden's NATO membership. Which leaves all eyes on Erdogan, who's likely to be watching and waiting for Congress to act before putting pen to paper and ratifying Sweden's membership. Doreen Jones, DW, Istanbul. And the speculative politicking continues here on Inside Europe as we look ahead to June's all-important European parliamentary elections. This week, the European Council on Foreign Relations, ECFR think tank, released an elections forecast which predicted a sharp right turn, which would fundamentally shift the balance of power within the parliament to the right. Earlier, I spoke to the report's lead author, Kevin Cunningham, about the findings and their possible implications. So what we did was we looked at opinion polling in 2019 and in 2014 um, and the way in which opinion polling in, in the January of those years was able to predict the results in the European parliamentary elections uh, that happened six months later. And we used all the information that we have today to be able to project what we believe might be the most likely composition of the European Parliament at the elections in June, this June. What we find is quite a significant shift towards the right of the Parliament. So, for example, the ECR group moves from 67 seats to 85 seats. Identity and Democracy, an even further uh, right-wing group, moves from 58 seats to 98 seats. And that in and of itself changes the way in which the parliament um, shifts. Other parties, uh, such as the Green Group, shift down from 71 down to 61. Renew Europe go from 101 seats down to 86 seats. 
I mean, overall, it's a rightward shift uh, in the electorate. And it's a function of events that have happened across Europe. I mean, normally, from one election to the next, you might expect, you know, an increase in support for, say, a left-wing party in one country to cancel out in another country. So in theory, we shouldn't necessarily expect massive shifts in support uh, at European parliamentary elections because, you know, each national parliament and the support of each party in each country has idiosyncrasies which invariably should cancel one one another out. Well, the fact that we're observing this rightward shift overall is an indication of a general rightward shift in European politics since 2019. And obviously, remembering that in 2019, that was already a significant rightward shift on the 2014 results. So this is quite interesting because if you remember, 2019 came after, you know, a lot of increased salience of immigration right throughout Europe. And yet, even today, we have a further shift. So I think it's it's quite remarkable and quite indicative, I guess, of uh, future difficulties at the European Parliament in terms of passing legislation and the sorts of legislation that the European Parliament has passed thus, thus far. Right. Could we zoom in on those difficulties a bit? What are the implications in terms of policy and Europe's ability to deal with crises ranging from borders to the climate? Yeah, the the climate issue is is probably the best example of this, because uh, at the most recent parliament, the most recent European parliamentary term, there was a vote on the nature restoration law. That was a relatively tight uh, result. There were 324 against rejecting a commission from the proposal, 312 uh, in favour. Uh, it was a relatively tight a win, let's say, for, for climate back in July 2023. What is interesting is that if the um, parliament that we envisage uh, was voting on that same piece of legislation, it wouldn't have passed. And it, not only would it not have passed, but it wouldn't have passed by a very substantial margin. It would have been, according to our numbers, by 393 effectively taking the anti-climate action position and 321 taking the sort of pro-climate position. And so that's just an indication in and of itself that it will be more difficult in the next parliamentary term to pass legislation in relation to climate change. That isn't as a result of the fact of these uh, parties being explicitly uh, opposed to climate action. They're generally more concerned with issues like immigration. So one could envisage in, in terms of issues like immigration, uh, we could expect a very significant shift in policy from, from the European Union itself. You've talked about immigration there, but what other factors, Kevin, might be contributing to this shift? It's quite likely that the war in Ukraine is influencing uh, this kind of rightward shift or something, because if you go back to 2021 and early 2022, a lot of the elections that took place in that particular period revealed a a relative increase in support for the centre-left. You know, these radical right parties weren't doing particularly well two years ago even. But 2023 seems to have been a very, very good year for these parties. Uh, And they're rising quite sharply in a lot of countries um, just in the last year. It might be the case also that that trend continues and that what we're observing is just based on a projection that wouldn't necessarily accommodate for a potentially sharp increase in support for these parties between now and the actual uh, election itself. So our estimates are just based on, you know, the general way in which Parties can convert their their popular support in the January of uh, the European election year compared to how they actually do in, in, in June of that year. 
And of course, we are in 2024. So this mega election year with national elections taking place in various countries. To what extent does performance at an EU level reflect or play into performance at a national level? There's no doubt that the European elections, when there is this uh, rightward shift, that one could uh, conceivably expect political parties that are on that end of the spectrum to subsequently benefit, as happened after the last election where the Green parties did relatively well. Green party support generally increased in national parliaments uh, immediately after. And there's obviously a number of uh, elections coming up, most immediately the Austrian general election. You also uh, will see in our in our figures that Rassemblement National uh, in France are doing very, very well. Approval ratings for Emmanuel Macron are, are relatively poor, um, although uh, in France uh, approval ratings of presidents tend to be relatively poor. But um, it does seem that uh, they are perhaps more likely than not to potentially win the next uh, French presidential election. You know, it's 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 hard to tell uh, what will happen in the long run because because on on another level, you know, European politics is a lot more volatile than it used to be. Um, if you go back to previous elections, you would generally have a pretty solid prediction of how political parties might fare in these elections because. You know, you might expect party support to change by no more than 5% between January and June of the European election year. But at the last time, those those average changes were much bigger. Uh, so, you know, th- there is enormous volatility as well. Um, so while our point predictions suggest that there is going to be a rightward shift, and I think that is certainly going to happen, the scale of that rightward shift, there might be a bit more uncertainty I was speaking to Kevin Cunningham, lead author of the European Council on Foreign Relations, a Sharp Right Turn report, which is available to read snazzy graphics and all on the ECFR's website. If you want to find out more about the upcoming European parliamentary elections, then you could listen to our first Inside Europe of the year, which is available on YouTube under the title A Survival Guide to 2024. It features Sarah Wheaton, host of Politico's EU Confidential podcast. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. After 12 years in the job, it is finally time for Finnish President Saudi Minister to step aside and make way for somebody else. But with nine candidates all competing for the presidential post, how are Finns going to decide between them? Will they be swayed by national security or by TikTok? Terry Schultz has been finding out. Finnish President Sauli Niinistö has overseen some of the most dramatic changes his country has undergone since World War II. When he took office in 2012, Finland had a stable, if cautious, relationship with its huge neighbor Russia, with which it shares a 1,340-kilometer border. Moscow's first invasion of Ukraine would only take place two years later. 
Today, those candidates vying to replace Ninista are dealing with a hostile and aggressive Russia, waging war on Ukraine. But they do so as a NATO ally, something unimaginable when Ninista's first term began. Jukka Savolainen is a Finnish analyst on border security with the Helsinki-based European Center of Excellence for countering hybrid threats. The whole society was indoctrinated to understand that we have a big neighbor. We'd better take their interest into account and uh, try to be in a positive way cooperating with them and doing business and everything. And this was tried and now we have had huge losses in economy and uh, huge fear in terms of military threat. Etc. So yes, the, the change is good. The change is clear. It exceeded what no, what anybody could see as happening. As a result, this has created a unique situation in which there's virtually unanimity among the candidates when it comes to relations with Russia. There's no consideration of returning to business as usual, which was a lot of business, unless and until Russia ends its war on Ukraine. The dominance of the war and the end of any debate over whether to join NATO has resulted in the top candidates sounding very similar to each other, says an expert in Finnish voting behavior, Theodora Helemaki from the University of Helsinki. How can there be differences in foreign policy right now when we are still we are facing kind of a, uh, financial difficulties? You can't be of different opinions there. You can't be of differing opinions about NATO anymore because we just entered there. You can't be of differing uh, differing opinions about national security. So they, these are kind of big, big questions which kind of have obvious answers. So there is no differentiation in policy in that sense. The three candidates topping the polls are quite close together. Alexander Stubb, a former prime minister and member of the European Parliament, is ahead. He's from the Liberal Conservative National Coalition Party. Close behind are Green candidate and former foreign minister Pekka Havisto and Yussi Halaaho from the right-wing Finns party. Despite minor differences on issues such as China or migration, there's not a lot of daylight between them, Helimaki notes. A lot of our presidential candidates have a very good CV. If you look at their CV, they're perfect for the job. They're perfect as presidents. They have a lot of um, experience from international politics and domestic politics. But not all of them are as charismatic or as appealing to a wider range of of the Finnish population. Charisma, not something that's always been a top priority in Finnish candidates, but that was before social media and a distinct evolution in Finnish society to want a more personal relationship with their president. Frontrunner Alex Stubb in years past faced huge criticism for being too outgoing and sharing too much information on social media. Celia Porkala, a youth participation expert with the Finnish Youth Council Alliancy, says these qualities are now contributing to Stubb's success. It's a different world. Social media has changed the game very much. So the things that you used to get criticized about or the things that made took away your credibility, they are not the same things anymore. At least among younger voters, you have to go to their level and you know make contact with them on the places that younger people really are if you want them to vote for you. And in Alianzi's mock election with some 90,000 students too young to cast real ballots, Alexander Stubb was the victor. Among eligible citizens, by the time in-person voting takes place Sunday, a record number, 44%, will have already cast their ballots in advance, 
With neither frontrunner Stubb nor any other candidate expected to sweep half the votes, a second round with the top two will be held February 11th. Terry Schultz, DW, Helsinki. Just time now for this. Last week on our Spotify poll, we had a quotation for you. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. There is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. Now, an overwhelming majority of you thought that the quotation was from Britain's wartime Prime Minister Winston Churchill... But those words were actually said by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his 1967 Beyond Vietnam speech. So congratulations to the few of you who did get it right. This week, Inside Europe's marking the release of the 2024 Oscar nominations by holding a little contest of its own. Uh, Oh, to all, all my fellow nominees, if you're Irish or not, you're all legends. You're stunning work. I salute you. Yeah, we so enjoyed the Irish takeover at the Golden Globes that we thought we would invite you to vote for your favourite male Irish actor. Colin Farrell, by the way, has already got our editor's vote, but I am going to enable multiple choice since it takes a stronger woman than me to decide between the likes of Paul Meskell. I want to thank the cast. Um, I'm probably forgetting people and I'm incredibly nervous, so... um uh, my mum and dad at home, I love you. Uh, so thank you, I don't know what else to say. Barry Keoghan. That's good, bro, I'm only doing Irish press. <laughs> How are you feeling? Good, bro, all good, yeah, excited. Killian Murphy. Oh boy, uh, first question, do I have lipstick all over my nose? Uh, I'm just going to leave it. And Andrew Scott. Well, it's just nice that people are going to see the film, you know what I mean? That's what it does. It highlights the movie, and I really, really would love people to go and see this film in in whatever way they can, but I'd love people to go and, and see it in the cinemas because it's a real kind of collective experience, you know. Anyway, you know what to do. Head over to this week's edition of Inside Europe on Spotify to have your say. Inside Europe is, of course, also available on all the other usual platforms, as is... I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. I've lost 20K. I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might just continue. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy. Hence why they like cannabis and crypto. Money, money green, you know, like everybody likes money. In this investigative podcast series, we entered a world that we never expected to find. It bears all the trademarks, the Russian mafia. It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very best. Stop fantasy. This is Cannabis Cowboys, a story about big dreams, juicy money, and never-ending hype. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts. 
Cannabis Cowboys, by the way, is one of the podcasts featured on DW's new DW Podcasts channel on YouTube. We're there as well, but we're very much aware that we're in the trial phases still of using this new platform. So if you have any tips or feedback about the way that we're presenting ourselves there or interacting with people on the platform, then please do let us know either via the platform itself, of course, or by dropping us a line at insideeurope at dw.com. That feedback address is, of course, as always, open for all your comments and ideas for future shows. You are, of course, listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, Atal versus Badela, French politics and the fickle capital of youth. After the Zeitenwende, a journey to the heart of Unterlus. You can see craters, you can see also rows of tanks, because this is where Rheinmetall, the biggest German arms manufacturer, tests the weapons it produces and also where it shows them off to heads of states or defense ministers or even private customers. And leaning tower of Bologna. Just don't stand too close when you take your selfie. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. France began the new year by appointing a fresh face at the top, replacing the beleaguered 62-year-old Prime Minister Elisabeth Borne with the fresh-faced Gabriel Attal, who at just 34 years of age became the youngest Prime Minister the country has ever seen. President Macron, himself only 46, said that by nominating Attal, whose previous roles include government spokesperson and a very short stint as education minister, he was rearming and revitalizing his presidency. But by promoting youth, Macron may also be aiding his opponents. As John Lawrenson reports from Paris, the coming years are now likely to centre on a duel between Gabriel Attal and the president of Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National Party, 28-year-old Jordan Badela. It's been said, and I've heard and read, the youngest president in French history appoints the youngest prime minister in history. Gabriel Attal, speaking just after his nomination. I see just one symbol here of audacity and movement. The symbol too, perhaps, of confidence in the young generation that deserves that we fight for it ceaselessly. Though not everyone shares that confidence in the young. 
Est-ce que vous savez que Premier ministre, c'est un poste où on est obligé de parfois bosser au-delà de 17 Humorist Gaspar Proust, for example, who, on the Europe 1 radio station, reminded listeners that Prime Ministers sometimes have to work after five in the evening, but that with youngsters, you have to respect their biological rhythm. No screens after six, supper at seven, brush teeth and in bed by eight. Opposition politicians, too, have been critical of the idea that youth is a value in itself, such as centre-right MEP Geoffroy Didier. Il est jeune, il est talentueux, mais la jeunesse... He's young and talented, but youth never produced a single percentage point of extra economic growth, and being a good speaker never reduced the crime rate. Until now, prospective French PMs needed three things on their CVs to have studied at the École Normale d'Administration, ENA, that trains France's civil service elite, to have worked in the civil service, and solid ministerial experience, none of which Attal has. Sometimes derided as a mini-Macron, he is nevertheless the most popular politician in Emmanuel Macron's team, considerably more popular than the president himself. During his five and a half months as education minister, he earned very good approval ratings for reaffirming France's ban on religious dress at school, reintroducing different classes for stronger and weaker pupils, and clamping down on bullying, something he suffered from himself because of his homosexuality. And his young age? Is it a good thing to give the highest posts in the land to younger and younger politicians? A question I put to people out on the streets of Paris. A few years ago, before Macron was elected, I would have said yes, because it means young people like me get represented. Now, I think what matters is whether the politicians' ideas are compatible with mine. Macron and Attal are much too right-wing for me. Whether they're 35 or 60 is neither here nor there. When you look at the United States, you can see that old age can be a problem. Joe Biden is elderly, too old. And now Donald Trump is coming back, but he's old too. But if the two probable contenders in the next US presidential race are old enough to be Gabriel Attal's grandfather, the new French Prime Minister, already the youngest in Europe, is getting on a bit compared to the new star of Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National, 28-year-old Jordan Bardella. Who, as it happens, was questioned on French public radio quite recently in quite a scathing way about his being old enough to become Prime Minister should Marine Le Pen win the next presidential election. There's an interesting equivalence between the two men, Attal and Bardella, the roles they play for their respective mentors. They've already crossed swords on numerous occasions on French radio and television. They met by chance once on a plane to Marseille and spent the whole flight in conversation. There is a sort of generational complicity between the two. They are in no sense friends, but they do use the familiar tu when addressing each other. They agree about nothing, says Attal, but they respect each other. It's funny, says Bardella. Whenever one says something, he knows what the other is going to say back. But, says Gilles Ivaldi, researcher with the French political science institute Sciences Po, their backgrounds couldn't be more different. Bardella comes from a working class background. 
is uh, from an immigration background uh, as well. Uh, he was raised in one of those uh, city suburbs near Paris. And uh, so he's, um, he very much represents the, the sort of voter that the Rassemblement National is appealing to, you know, working class or lower middle class, self-made man. Um, whereas uh, Attal is very much the uh, typical bourgeois coming from an urban and, uh, you know, uh, upper class background in Paris. So uh, they are very different in that respect. And somehow they sort of represent the electoral constituencies of their respective parties, which is quite interesting. So what about the consequences of Attal becoming prime minister for the competition between the two men? Martial Foucault, director of the political science centre Sevipov, thinks it's negative for Bardella. This is bad news for the Rassemblement National, which, like the governing political alliance, has got a lot younger thanks to the rise of Jordan Badella. But we can imagine that Badella's advantage would have been greater if he'd been up against older opponents. But fellow political scientist Gilles Ivaldi says it might in a way be positive for him. It might help Bardella in the sense that it's now clear that we can have a new generation of politicians in France and that the young generation is slowly and progressively taking over, which means that Bardella could be next on that on that trajectory once Marine Le Pen goes out of uh, national politics or even maybe even before that. Um, so that's good for him. Whether or not the Atal nomination will help him or harm him in the long run, Bardella, France's youngest political leader, is, for the time being, doing very well. There was a recent opinion poll in France where people were asked who were their favourite celebrities. Among all the singers and actors and footballers and television presenters, there was one politician in the top 50, and it was him. John Lawrenson, DW, Paris. In way of contrast, here is a very different type of politician. Der 24. Februar 2022 markiert eine Zeitenwende in der Geschichte unseres Kontinents. Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz, 65, is hardly a youthful media star. But that speech that we've just played there made such a mark on Germany that it's become known simply as the Zeitenwende speech. Made just days after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, it announced a changing of the times, a major shift in both German foreign policy and Germany's understanding of its place in Europe and the world. Pacifism was out, defence and security were in. The reverberations of this national repositioning have been felt throughout the country, but perhaps nowhere more so than in the northern German village of Unterlus, a community whose fortunes are almost entirely bound up with those of Germany's biggest weapons manufacturer, Rheinmetall. Peace means I will lose my job, was the sobering title of a long-form reportage from Unterlus, which appeared in the December edition of The Dial, a new international magazine of reporting and writing. Its author, investigative journalist Tanja Rödke, took me on a descriptive journey to the heart of Germany's Zeitenwende. If you take this little regional train from maybe Hanover and you go through this thick forest and then suddenly the train stops and you're at this very bland train station with just a few train tracks and that's where the town starts so the 
train station is in the south of the town and then it develops north in a sort of rectangular shape and you go down maybe the main road would take you maybe 20 minutes to cross to the whole town and then you're at the beginning of this large shooting range of this testing ground from Rheinmetall. The town itself was founded in 1850, kind of with a train stop. And it was supposed to help the workers transport wood and also work in the nearby mines. And in 1899, Rheinmetall settled here because they, got, they bought this land, which is to the north of the town, And if you look on Google Maps or the like, on satellite images, which I really recommend you do, <laughs> because it's very impressive to see this long yeah, piece of flat land in the forest north of this town. The town fits maybe three and a half times into this space of the testing ground. And if you zoom into this testing ground, you can see craters, you can see also rows of tanks, because this is where Rheinmetall, the biggest German arms manufacturer, tests the weapons it produces and also where it shows them off to heads of states or defense ministers or even private customers. And if you walk through this town, you turn left, you look left and right down the roads, again at which ends, which end in just forest. So you kind of surrounded the whole time by this forest, making it a little bit uncanny, the whole atmosphere. The first time I went there, it was foggy, so it really did feel a bit like Where have I ended up? And then you get the soundscape. You hear the weapons tests and the gunshots and the explosions, and it makes it even more uncanny. And um, I'm really now quite fascinated by this town because I like this idea that it was set up artificially, kind of for business, and now these people live there. It, it fell from the sky, one of the people that you speak to in your article says. Exactly, the priest, fittingly. <laughs> the priest of the town said, uh, Untelis fell from the sky. Yeah. As I mentioned to you when we were talking about this interview, I live in Dusseldorf, which is where the Rheinmetall uh, offices are based, is where the headquarters are. Um, very, very different. They have their own Rheinmetall Platz, which is where the headquarters are. They're big and they're glass and they're shiny. Uh, it's all people in suits coming and going. I presume that's where Rheinmetall's CEO, Armin uh, Papega, um, has his office. Uh, I don't know that for sure, but I'm assuming um, he's on a, a multi-million salary. I imagine that the Dusseldorf shiny glass corporate world seems a universe away from the world that you discovered in Unterlis. Yeah, absolutely. It's surprising how derelict some of the houses are. And interestingly enough, uh, houses that used to belong to Rheinmetall, because like all good German companies <laughs> in the 20s, 30s, 40s, the company built houses for its workers. But now many of them are derelict. They've been sold off in the 90s and kind of left to decay. That is so interesting, Tanya, because, I mean, you, you said it was in the 90s. I mean, and what's happening there, presumably, is that the Cold War has come to an end. Germany is massively scaling back the amount of money that it's putting into its military. And so Heimatal goes through lean years. And now, of course... We're in a completely different era. Um, at Zeitenwender, changing of the times was the phrase that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz used shortly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Exactly. And you can feel it in Unterlis that Rheinmetall is doing well because there's just much more traffic, more gunshots, 
more visits from heads of states and also more and more, more um, traffic from the Rheinmetall factory plant to deliver tanks, etc. Because you can see it in the town when they leave, sometimes at night over the train tracks. Another line that I remember from your article is when Rheinmetall is doing well, Unterlass is doing well. What was it like for you as a reporter coming in and asking questions? Were people happy to talk to you? I was really lucky because I contacted the priest, the local priest, and he was a great leader for me to get to know the community. He ha um, helped me a lot with contacts. He um, gave me contacts to former Rheinmetall employees and also people who would be critical of Rheinmetall and wanted to speak anonymously. I also spoke to the mayor, who was, you know, by this point already used to being asked by the press. Um, but there was also, for example, there's a little Russian market because Enontelis has a um, big community of German-Russian resettlers who also came at the end of the Cold War to Germany because they had the right to German citizenship. A lady in the Russian market was very happy to talk as well. There were people who definitely didn't want to talk about Rheinmetall. When I mentioned it, they would just say, no comment, no, no, we, we're not going to say anything about this. Um, so it was a mix. I mean, that little Russian-speaking supermarket that you mentioned, it sounded fascinating because it, it's become a sort of a meeting place for uh, German-Russians and now Ukrainian refugees. Exactly. In the beginning, it even did lead to some conflicts in the shop because some of the Ukrainians who came did not feel comfortable with the Russian being spoken. The people in the Russian working in the Russian shop took down posters of Russian artists because they felt in general there was a mood against all things Russian. But now it seems like the situation in the little Russian shop has calmed down and um, friends have been made and obviously um, Ukrainian refugees are happy to be in such a small place but actually get have access to foods from home that they would not be able to get at the two big local supermarkets. What about the noise of munitions and, and, and things being let off on the testing ground? I mean, that's an ever-present sound. How, how do the refugees respond to that, given that they must be carrying pretty traumatic memories with them? That's also what the lady in the Russian shop reported, that Ukrainian friends of hers were um, shocked and even afraid of the noise. And, you know, everyone in Untelis says, oh, you just get used to it. You get used to the noise. <laughs> a lot of people even just compared it to, if you live by train tracks, it's like the train going past. I, I suppose, um, I mean, what you're describing is a, a process of normalization that the people of Untelis have been living with for years and years and years to the extent that they don't even hear the munitions going off anymore. But if you sort of widen this out and look at Germany, this normalization is very, very recent because until Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, the, Germany regarded itself as uh, not only being sort of a, a, a very pacifist sort of country, but also being almost duty bound to that pacifism because of its own very violent past. Um, that's obviously changing. What sort of effect does that wider general change of public opinion in Germany have on the people in Unterlus? Are they aware of it? Um, how are they responding to it? The people of Unterlus are definitely aware of it. And I think in general, it makes them happy. Because finally, their opinion seems to be more in line with the general German opinion. Because I think the region where Unterlis is set is surrounded with military bases and 
the Bundeswehr has uh, training grounds around. So Unterlis has in general been in favor of military and pro-military. And now, since the Zeitenwende, it seems that Germany, or the wider German public, has come in line with their opinion. And so it seemed, when I spoke to people, they were like, finally, they see that we need a fully equipped military. And even critical people in Unterlis, who don't want anything to do with Rheinmetall, even they said that there was something that changed in their opinion since the war in Ukraine, since the Zeitenwende, because they did also fear what if Putin would had just overrun Ukraine and would have stood outside the borders of the EU, of Europe. Well, it's an incredibly haunting portrait that you've painted of this uh, place, Tanya, in your article. As, as you sort of left Ontelos, was there a particular image or conversation that you think is going to stay with you? Someone in Unterlis made these great little books, Chronicles of Unterlis, and wrote about the whole history of the town. I found it interesting, the interwar periods, you know, after the First World War, Rheinmetall couldn't make weapons, so they started making consumer goods like typewriters. But obviously also the Second World War was um, made Unterlis a really important and um, gruesome place because uh, they did have uh, many forced laborers and even in the town you can still see traces of where the forced laborers would be housed and on the graveyard you see graves mass graves of deceased forced laborers and their children because there was also for the children of the forced laborer women there was a little um, special barrack and then you can see gravestones that says here buried four Polish children and that's quite haunting, I think. German journalist Tanja Röttger there. We'll be linking to Tanja's piece in the dial, Peace Means I Will Lose My Job, in the show notes. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Until last year, Italy's only world-famous-leaning tower was the one in Pisa. But last autumn, Bologna's Garisenda Tower became international news when word spread that it was at imminent risk of collapse. It's one of a pair, known simply as Le Due Torri, the two towers, which stand in a small piazza right in the city centre where five streets converge. Our correspondent, Danny Mitzmans, lived in Bologna for almost 25 years and, like all residents, is very attached to the city's phallic symbols. Oh, I'm so sorry, I read that wrong. Is very attached to the city's twin towers. Over to Danny. There's a saying that Bologna's famous for the three T's, tortellini, towers and t- While that last T always gets a giggle... The stuffed pasta shaped like Venus's navel and the medieval towers are both sources of profound Bolognese pride. Towers were medieval status symbols, like vertical Ferraris. The higher the tower, the wealthier the family. 
Dotted around the centre, there's still a handful of those towers rising up above the city's porticoed streets. But the most famous by far are Garizenda and Asinelli, always referred to as Le Due Torri, the Two Towers. Asinelli's actually the tallest medieval tower in Italy, but it just wouldn't be the same without its shorter neighbour leaning away from it and creating one of the city's most photographed views. I'm an architect, so, well, there's a sense of, okay, how those, you know, um, I mean, medieval towers sort of going up that high, I wonder. Yeah, that it's still standing. Right, I kind of wonder, because this is just a simple masonry structure, right? And then, so in modern tower, you can sway and all that, okay, but this is different, so I was amazed. Le Due Torri are a much-loved symbol here, featuring on fridge magnets, key rings, tea towels, mugs and all manner of tourist souvenirs. We know that they might fall down, like they might fall apart someday, but nobody knows when and if it's going to happen. And we know that they're inclined like quite a bit. So you have decided to have a coffee sitting directly underneath the one that's at risk? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How does that feel? <laughs> We were trying to forget it. <laughs> and I've just reminded you, sorry. <laughs> the probability that it falls is between, what is it, zero, zero point something and 100%, so we just give it a try. <laughs> and I read that it's 3.3 meters overhang, and this is hard to imagine that it still stands, but it's impressive. You are at the exact right angle to enjoy the mm -hmm. view of it because where you're sitting, you can really, really see that um, incline. I think it will fall in this way, not in our direction, so I'm, I'm happy. I like your optimism. Thank you. <laughs> Two of Bologna's most famous singers in a promotional video with the mayor launching a crowdfunding campaign for restoring the towers. Within weeks, they'd raised almost 3 million euros, and it's easy to see why. Restaurants, bars and pizzerias bear the name Le Due Torri, and logos featuring their leaning silhouettes are ubiquitous. In fact, they're so intensely iconic, they're synonymous with Bologna itself. If an Italian mentions the city of the Due Torri, everyone knows where they mean. So, for the Bolognesi, the idea of the two towers becoming one is simply unthinkable. Let's hope not. It's been leaning like this for 900 years. It's leaning a bit more, that's true. But in my opinion, stopping the buses from passing by will resolve the problem. Ulisse's gelateria sits on the corner almost directly beneath Garizenda. He even makes a flavour called Due Torri, and he says he doesn't want to change its name. Ulisse says it was quite a shock when the council closed the road off and started putting barriers up around the tower. At first it was hard, but now I have to say I'd be really happy if they decided to pedestrianise the whole area. For a gelateria it would be fantastic. That's not to say the new situation, which will probably last years, isn't without its challenges. We have to go a long way round and bring our gelato in a cart on foot. 
It's a bit of a problem, but it's doable. We've managed to get through COVID. This is nothing compared to that. But it's not the same for all businesses, especially those with heavy deliveries to unload. We're talking about ways to help each other. A committee to see if we can get the council to help with expenses like the rubbish collection tax. We're hoping they'll reduce them because rent is high round here. I'm on the corner, so I'm okay. But those further down are really losing out on trade. Just a few steps away is the Bottega Portici, where they hand-make traditional egg pasta like tagliatelle, tortelloni and, of course, tortellini. They do it in the window so that passers-by can watch the show. Deputy manager Pierre says there's been an undeniable impact on business. We've definitely noticed a drop in numbers. Before, people would pass by and stop, but the barriers and people's anxiety mean they're not doing that, and we're feeling it. Pierre isn't nearly as positive as Ulisse. We're waiting to hear back from the authorities to see how this all evolves. They're talking about pedestrianising the whole area in front, which would mean we'd lose all our outside tables. So we're looking at strategies to deal with this. But many locals who've grown up beneath the Due Torri are far more sanguine. No, I'm not worried because they've always been well monitored. It's not something that's happened suddenly, despite recent polemics. They've now realized they have to take better care of the towers. But I think the love that exists for them will ensure they find a solution like they did for the Tower of Pisa. But it's not a surprise for us. People who come from this city already knew about it. Garacenda is our dear friend who we love and we look after. They're at risk, but we're all at risk. Time goes by and it's nothing new. Of course, I hope they manage to keep them standing, but I know they will because Bologna is a great city. It's small, but big in spirit, so I'm sure they'll do everything to ensure they're still standing, even after I'm long gone. Danny Mitzman, DW, Bologna. For every structural problem, there is an appropriate snack. Lesson of the week there, folks. That is it for today. The feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. This programme was produced by Helen Sini with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineer, Ziad Abu Sleiman. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. 